Uh, good evening, everybody, and welcome uh, to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I have to say that. I know you know where you are, um, but welcome again. It's lovely to be here. I'm Damien Barr, um, and I'm delighted to be in conversation tonight with the award-winning, best-selling, and now completely uninsurable writer, <laughs> Maggie O'Farrell. Uh, now, we've known, um, we've known Maggie, obviously, is one of our best novelists for a very long time, but it was something of a surprise to the world when she launched her amazing memoir, I Am, I Am, I Am, um, on them, and she's now rightly acclaimed for that as a memoirist. She's going to read a wee bit tonight. Um, I know she read a little bit last year, and people fainted. <laughs> so just watch out for the people next to you or <laughs> landing on you. Um, might give you some material. Um, but she's going to read a wee bit, then we're going to talk, and then we're going to take questions, and then um, at the end we're going to go out for a signing, which is going to happen um, just round there. So do you want to yep. go ahead? Actually, you know what? I didn't get to read it last year because somebody fainted. Um, <laughs> everything got a little bit behind the times. Um, but yeah, there is something weird about this book, actually, because people, no, no one has ever fainted at any of my events uh, with my novels, but this one, almost every single time somebody faints. Um, I don't know what it is. It's not that it's going to be gory. I don't want to scare you all. Um, but I, was in, I did a reading in Canada, and this enormous six-foot-six ice hockey player went down like a tree and he pulled a whole tablecloth and loads of glasses over. It was so dramatic. And his girlfriend was just like, oh, he's fine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so I'm going to read from a chapter called Cerebellum, which is from 1980, when I was eight years old. Just before the end of the summer holidays, I woke up early and the world looked different. The colours of the rug, the curtains, the lampshade were more vibrant. They were pulsing like a heart, like a sea anemone. The ceiling was like a film of floating liquid above me, a distant and blurred meniscus, and I was far below, in some mysterious depth. Nothing was static, everything shimmered and shifted. I had the sense that my sister, in the lower bunk, was miles away. For a while I lay there, arms by my sides, and took it in. The light, the colour, the motion. Oh, brave new world. When I went to get up, I raised myself off the pillow, and a sensation burst open inside my head. It was a pain so severe, so pure, that it was as if someone was sounding a high soprano chord somewhere behind my eyes. It was a pain that stretched my head to bursting point, as if my skull was a balloon overfilled with water. I have never felt pain like it before or since. It was edgeless, it was perfect, the way the shell of an egg is perfect, and it was invasive, colonizing. It sought, I knew, to take me over, to replace me with itself, like a bad spirit like a fiend. A day or so later, the pain intensified, gained strength and focus, and it seemed to me that my hands were acquiring minds of their own. They began to waver and swing like the limbs of the tow-headed puppet that hung from our bedroom ceiling. I reached my hand across the sink for my toothbrush, and somehow my hand connected instead with the wall, with the air, with the wall again. I tried to pick up a pencil, but my fingers refused to grip. Messages from my brain, from the part of myself I then thought of as my soul, didn't seem to be reaching the relevant limb. Transmission lost. Look, I said to my mum, look at this. By the time the GP came, and he came to the house on a rare and urgent home visit, an uncontrollable tremor had gripped my legs, my neck, my head, my arms. What I remember with a needling clarity is being summoned downstairs to see the doctor. I took the stairs a step at a time. The GP, a man who had known me since I was little, stood watching, attentive, stock still, his bag in his hand, my mother beside him. Neither spoke as I came down towards them, my legs buckling under me, my hand flailing for the banister. Their faces floated in my field of vision, the swirled orange and brown carpet behind them, the light coming in through the opaque glass of the front door, the grey beige of the doctor's mac, the thin gold strand of his pocket watch stretching over the front of his waistcoat. As I reached the last stair, he turned to my mother and said, you need to take her to hospital. When you are a child, no one tells you that you're going to die. You have to work it out for yourself. 
Clues may include your mother crying but then pretending not to, your siblings being kept away from you, doctors looking at you with an expression of concentration, gravity and a certain fascination, nurses avoiding your eye, relatives travelling great distances to visit you, hospital isolation rooms, invasive procedures and groups of medical students are also reliable signs. See also Great Presence. Thank you. Um, that little reading really captures the tension of the book and also the humour that's in there and I think we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that as well because it's often surprisingly funny um, now I've asked you a lot over the years about writing a memoir when we've been talking about your novels and you've always just flat out refused um, so why did you not want to write one? what was stopping you? I don't know, it never really occurred to me as an option in life I never thought I would do it and in fact I used to joke about it with my husband, with Will um, and he used to kind of say, oh, I'm as likely to become a mathematician or an acrobat as I am to write a memoir. Um, and he says it's because, he says, I'm the most secretive person he's ever met. And that I'm actually much more secretive than I really need to be. I mean, you know, because we're both writers, we both work at home, and often I will say to him, I'm going out. And he says, where are you going? And I just say, oh, I'm just going out. And I'm actually just going to the post office. Um, but I still can't tell him. It's not as if I'm going, having a torrid affair or anything. <laughs> just, just my instinct is to err on the side of privacy and secrecy. I don't know why. Right. Um, so, yeah, so, so a, a memoir was never really the natural thing to, for me at all. Uh, I don't really particularly like talking about myself. And I remember having this conversation with you because you've actually done the opposite because Damien started with a memoir and he's just written a novel which I have just started reading. So it's you, not scary you, at all to me. You're reading it right, right now. Yeah, so there's no, yeah, he's not nervous at all about that. Um, so but it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an odd switch to yeah. make, and I honestly never thought I would do it. I mean, I think the two things that always made me uncomfortable about writing a memoir, because um, I love reading them, yeah. was that it always felt to me like a huge tax on your friends and family. Um, you know, sometimes I'm reading a memoir and... And I'm finding it fascinating, but almost my breath will be taken away because I just think, how could you say that about, yeah. you know, your parents or your siblings or people who are still alive, people who are still involved in your life? Yeah. Um, so were, the they other thing, your, were they in your mind partly when you were, if you ever had had that thought, would you be thinking, oh, well, yes. my, mother, my mother would be mortified? Well, my... it's not so much that, but it's also about the other people yeah. around you. And it's, you know, because not everybody has the right of reply. Yeah. You know, I've got one other writer in my life, that's my husband, but my parents and siblings and friends and you know children aren't they don't they don't have a right of reply themselves mm. um and the other thing that always worried me about memoirs is that i always found them i worried a lot about the chronological plod and that didn't really appeal to me as a writer at all yeah um the idea that you'd start with your birth and then you'd trudge through your infancy and then school and you know because uh, because um none of my novels are chronological and i don't think chronology isn't really a narrative form that appeals to me at all so yeah, those are the reasons why I never thought I would do it, and I always said I'd never do it. Okay, so I mean, it's worth pointing out that the novel jumps up, the memoir jumps all over the place in terms yeah. of time. I mean, we're we're in mm. the, we're in the eighties, the nineties, and we're we're in the present day. So you got round that. I got, got round that. that particular issue. <laughs> I did. Um, so what was it that what was it that changed in you where you suddenly thought, right, I'm going to be, I'm going to write a memoir? And did you actually decide it, or did you just start writing something and find that it became a memoir? Well, what happened was I, I, had a, I had a plan to write another novel. So I finished um, This Must Be The Place yeah. and I had everything planned for my next novel. I had my wall charts up and I had all the books I needed to read for it. And I had, I'd started a little bit and I'd got lots of notebooks and I was all kind of ready. And I was sort of clearing my throat like an opera singer about to sing. And, and actually, I mean, I think of this book actually, um, <laughs> I think of this book as a bit of an unplanned pregnancy. Um, which perhaps says more about me than I should really reveal uh, mm. <laughs> because it really did feel like that I was planning to do one thing but actually this completely got in the way and so I, I keep a diary um, where I write I mean it's not really it's not, it's not an appointment sorry so I write sort of every day I write mm. in it about things it's not always just what's happened it's about what's on my mind um, and I found that the things I was writing in my diary were kind of getting longer and longer and more sort of involved and they were sort of it was almost a bit like dough bread dough rising up um and it was very disconcerting because you know i've written enough books to recognize a book when i see one yeah <laughs> and i thought i don't want to write this book this isn't the book i'm going to write this novel but the funny thing about unplanned pregnancies are they say no actually no we 
I'm going to arrive. This is me. I need to, this is my voice. Okay. <laughs> so no, I was absolutely petrified and I didn't, um, I mean, I was writing this book and I, I did write a couple of the essays and I didn't know what to do with them. So I showed them to my agent and she quickly sent them. Is that your heartbeat? I mean, it might be. <laughs> This is the most meta thing that's ever happened in an event. I swear we didn't arrange that. What would have been really troubling if it had stopped? Which it now it appears to have done. It, it now appears stopped. to have done. Shh. Is it going to stop? Is it going to start again? Okay? I mean, I just don't know what... Okay, well, anyway. I think we'll work with the heart. Okay. Um... um. Where, where were we? So, I don't know. <laughs> we, were, we were talking about the fact that you'd had this unplanned pregnancy. Oh, yeah, the unplanned so, pregnancy. What I, want to, what I want to know is what, yeah. what enabled you to proceed with it? Because you, you knew that it was kind of taking shape and that it was mm. happening. And yeah, yeah. You, could just, you could have stopped, you could have put it away, you could have kind of gone back to the novel, but you kept... Something was driving you back yes. to this. I could have done. I mean, I've always felt, actually, in a sense, that you don't really necessarily choose the books you write. I don't know if you find this. I think the books choose you. Oh, my you. God. It's back again. <laughs> just really glad about that. <laughs> I just moved my heart over here. Okay. Um, and so I did. So I showed it to, and my publisher saw it. <laughs> Can we turn the, the volume down on my heart? <laughs> Do you want to move it to your lapel? I can I move know. it for you. Okay. Let's just. Sorry, everybody. Just talk amongst yourselves for a minute. I don't want to spoil your lovely tie. So oh, right. here we go. Still, still beating. It's still going. I am. I am. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> I think that's better. All right, thank you very much, Maggie. I think I'm going to so worry, though, if we can't hear it. important literary <laughs> conversation. Um, so, um, the, the, what was driving you to go back to it all the time? Well, the thing is, it just, it was one of those things, it was a bit like radio interference, which you don't get anymore with digital radios, but I used to love radio interference, um, that you'd be, think you'd be listening to one thing and suddenly you'd get this other voice, from, often from Scandinavia or somewhere, yeah. but exciting. Um, and it really was, it, I just, I couldn't not write it, it just kept insisting on being written. Uh. And so I did, my publisher said, yes, we want to publish it, and got very excited. And I, um, I, I mean, even to the point at which a fortnight before it was published, it was published about a year ago, yeah. about a fortnight I did say, I don't know if I can do this, I really, <laughs> which of course was really relaxing for my publishers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is, it true, is it true that you only took an advance of a pound yeah. um, to write yeah. the book so that you could give it back in yeah. case you didn't have to I really do wasn't it? Sure. I wasn't sure, because I, I didn't know if I could do it, I don't know if I, because I've never really written non-fiction at all, yeah. and I didn't know if I could do it, and even if I, when I finished it, I didn't know if I was going to want to publish it. Uh-huh. So they, yeah, they offered me the money and I said, I don't want any money at all up front because I don't know if I'm going to A, be able or want to do it. Yeah. And they said, well, you've got to have something to make the contract legally binding. So I said, okay, I'll have a pound. I'll have a pound. Yeah. So I did. And there did was one day when I... More? I'm hoping that... Yeah. <laughs> they did. They have, I should say, yeah, they have paid me the rest now, to be fair, full disclosure. But I did send them a, a text message of a picture... Um, of a shopping trolley and I said, look, I've spent my advance. <laughs> <laughs> so I went, and went to the supermarket and, uh, yeah, spent it on a trolley. Um, so the, the, the subtitle of the book is just 17 Brushes mm. with Death. Um, one, of the, one of the key things I got from it was don't ever go on a swimming holiday with Maggie O'Farrell. Um, and I'm surprised that you continue to go swimming. It just seems very dangerous for you. But um, I, I wondered were there more than 17 and you, and you chose just the 17 or... Um, 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 there actually were more, yeah. And I thought there were. <laughs> there were a few that didn't make the cut. There were a few on the cutting room floor. Um, partly because I think some of them were actually just a... Oh, my God, it's back. So some of them were just no, a bit... Not, I'm not doing that. Sorry, we'll just ignore it's that. Hard we'll just ignore it. Um, yeah, so some of them were just a bit boring. Right. And there was one more swimming one. Sorry, just, just to backtrack, some of your brushes with death were a bit boring. Yeah, just narratively, they weren't that exciting. <laughs> like what? Like, like what? Like, I can't think of one. Like there were lots of reasons. And there were also some that were too exposing to other people. Right. And some that I didn't really particularly want to go there with certain aspects. I mean, you must find this with your memoir. There are just some things. Because actually the structure, coming up with the structure for me was quite liberating because it's uh, 17 non-consecutive uh, uh, essays. Yeah. And if you are writing, um, can, you know, sort of 
chronologically, I think you have to you have to have a certain amount of honesty with the reader. Yeah. But with coming up with that structure was quite liberating because there were bits that I could leave out. So there mm. is a lot that's in the book, but there's a lot that isn't in the book as well. Did you write the bits that aren't in the book and then cut them all? Or did you? Or did <laughs> no. you or so you didn't. No. So, so, and so also you just couldn't me, go there for you yeah, in terms I didn't go there of for the me, stuff just, you had to engage with. Well, there's certain bits that I didn't. There were involved other people actually that right. I didn't really want to talk about. And also writing like that, you are able. I mean, actually, none, no one in the book has their real name apart from my husband. Yeah. Everybody else has either a pseudonym and my siblings and parents and children aren't named at all. Mm-hmm. And that was really important to me not to expose them like that. Did you talk to anybody in your family about it before you started doing it? <laughs> we had this conversation. I sent Damien an email a couple of years ago saying, I think I'm writing this memoir and I'm really scared. And you, you said a brilliant thing. Do you remember what you said to me? Go on. You said, <laughs> among the many brilliant things Damien said to me. just I can lose track. <laughs> You said, the thing is, you can never please your family with a memoir because okay. you can either, they'll always say you either said too much or too little. Yeah. So if you don't say much about it, if you kind of keep their privacy, they're going to say, but I played a larger role in your life. Yeah. And if you say too much, they're going to say, right, you're exposing me. So that was very helpful because I did think actually, I mean, I, I was thought about it from my own point of view. I thought, how would I feel if somebody, say my husband wrote a memoir? I don't think I would, I wouldn't like it. Of course I wouldn't. Mm. Because, you know, you always see there's no such kind of thing as truth. I mean, I had convers- I, I did show mm. the pages in the book before I published it to the people. So I showed them the pages they appeared in. Mm. And I said, is there anything in here you don't want me to say or change? And I did, it, is, it does throw up interesting conversations because I had the kind of conversations with my <laughs> sisters. But they were mostly along the lines of, you said the dress was yellow, but actually it was blue. Yeah. And there was a lot of that. Kind of, and I said it was definitely blue, and she said it was definitely yellow. And I said, OK, well, it'll be green. Yes. <laughs> right. And you, you had a conversation with your mum in which she remembered uh, one, of the, one of the brushes with death that you'd forgotten. That's right. <laughs> yes, she did. Yeah, yeah, well, I was too young to really remember it. Um, and that kind of made it into the book, t- talking to my mum about it. And yeah. she said, well, what are you going to include? And we ticked them off. And then she said, what about the time when I nearly killed you with the car door? <laughs> and I said... I don't oh. remember that one. <laughs> and so she told me. But I think that in itself is interesting because I think writing a memoir, I don't know if you found this when you wrote yours, that there's no such thing as absolute truth. No. That you are always going to see a situation differently. I mean, you know, you and I will have differing memories from this sitting on the stage tonight. Yeah. And that's part of life and it's part of truth and part of narrative. I think, so, I think you have to acknowledge the limitations of that. Yes. Um, and say, I'm telling you my story from my point of view yeah. at this time. Um, I shared some pages of, of my memoir um, with, with my sister um, and we were talking about an event that had happened with my mother's partner who was very violent and, um, and she didn't comment on any of the things um, that, that he said but she said to me um, I don't remember living in that house <laughs> and I said what do you mean we lived there for three years and she said I don't remember that house and I thought if my sister can forget a house what yeah, have yeah. I forgotten yeah, so yeah, you know so I, I think I, th- I think it, for me it's about getting to the, the the, the truth of of what ha- what the truth of what happened to you, and that's all you can mm. ever ever claim to talk about. But people do. I mean, the other, there are other people, and I won't say. I almost said characters because you write this with the the finesse of fiction, and you use a lot of the same techniques. It's really obvious that you're a novelist who's who's come to memoir. You read this book, and you know that it's a Maggie O'Farrell book, without having your name on the cover. Um, but the, but they do pop you know, they do pop up and and Will is there mm. and um, and it's interesting um, that at the points where you talk about him um, sometimes you'll change person you'll go from being first person to third person mm. and I wondered why you did that. Well, I wanted the grammar of the book or the syntax of the book to um, reflect the sort of different textures of memory. I think um, so. There are kind of certain things that happen to you. I think that you remember even years or a lifetime later that you remember in the kind of present tense, it's so vivid. I think particularly, I had a really interesting conversation with a neurologist um, and I said to her, you know, I'm interested to know what the effect of adrenaline has on your memory. Mm. You know, because often when something difficult happens to you, you do remember it with absolute crystal clarity. And she said, oh, well, if you have a surge of adrenaline, any memory from them is hardwired. It goes straight to the deepest part of your memory bank, basically, Mm. which is a very, and it made absolute perfect sense to me. So there are certain things that happen to you, I think, that will be very vivid. And there are certain things that might happen to you that feel as though they happened a long time ago, almost to somebody else. And it could be quite... So that was a kind of third-person, past-tense memory to me. So, yeah, I know it is... I do play around a lot with tenses and syntax and grammar, but there is 
was a reason for it. No, I mean, it's evident. I just wanted to know what it is, which is why I asked you. And that is it. And that is it. <laughs> um, you used the word memory there, and we've talked about this before, and I think it's really interesting that, you know, people will say to memoirists, oh, you've got such a good memory, you remember absolutely everything, you remember all those conversations. And for me, it's not about remembering. For me, it's about reliving, um, mm. sort of putting yourself back in that time, back in that space, back in that room. Um, and with a book like this, you know, where you're talking about, you know, you're talking about a man on a mountain pass who, who stops you and who later is discovered to be a murderer. You're talking about a machete at your neck. You're talking about a hemorrhage in childbirth. You're talking about these absolutely extraordinary and terrifying things. What was that like for you to go back to those places and those moments? I think it varied, actually. I mean, some of it was difficult. The first chapter, which is about the man on the mountain, and which is a story I've never told anyone, actually, um, and then the last chapter, which is about my daughter's medical condition and her repeated brushes with death. Those were the hardest, in a sense, to write. Not, I mean, not so much that it was difficult to kind of revisit it, but it's also, I think it, there was an interesting process to transmute the kind of, the, the, literally the worst things that ever happened to you, you know, almost dying at the hands of someone very violent and watching your child come very close to death, mm. you know, repeatedly. Um, but transmuting those into words is a difficult thing, actually, because there is a sense that you know you want to get it absolutely correct. And I think that's the hard, that was the, the tricky thing for me. Because it, I think writing a memoir, you have to kind of, you've got to almost go back and find the person you were when you were, say, five or mm. eight or 14 or, and look them in the eye and say, is this right? Have I got it right? Is yeah. this how it felt? Diana, and so that kind of clarity and, and sort of um, perspicuity was so important to get. And it's, it, it is a strange thing. I don't know how you... How did you get yourself back to that? Because I, I find music a really useful Yes, music was really, tool. really useful for me. I, I got out all my old um, smash hits compilations. Um, <laughs> I had to go and buy a, a new cassette player in the year 2005. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. Did you get a Walkman Yeah, I did, actually. Because I got the Walkman I couldn't ever afford it as a teenager. Oh. And I was like, no, I'm getting it. Um, and um, and I, I, listened to, I listened to those... And actually, the quality of it on a cassette tape, everything, all of that was very different, the clunking and the clicking of the mm. buttons. And, and I did also go onto YouTube and watch adverts from the time, oh, which took me back to watching television. Because yeah. um, in my parent, with my parents, my mum always watched Dynasty and my dad always watched <laughs> Dallas. Um, and they were divorced. And this was one of the few perks of the divorce was that I got to watch Dynasty and you Dallas. You got to watch both. Um, as that a child. That is a good perk. Um, gay child. Um, and, um, and, and, it, and it was great. And so, so watch, watching, watching uh, stuff on YouTube and listening to music definitely mm. helped get me kind of back in that space. What I found more problematic was getting out of that space. You know, I, I, I found that quite hard. You sort of, you know, I think with memoir, you, you kind of open a door to the past. You're mm. not putting it in the past. You're, you're kind of, you're, yeah. you're, 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 you're bringing it to your present. Bit, and it's a bit harder, I think, at the end of the day to get up from your desk. Yeah. I think having just finished a novel, it was easier to, to, to leave that. It's still percolating in the background, but it wasn't mm. sort of like, oh, you know, emo it's so emotional for me anyway, in that, in that way. Mm. Um, so uh, there's a lot in the book about touch, and I think that's really interesting. Um, when you talk about these moments um, where when you're, when you're either facing death, often you're being touched in, a way that, in the way that you don't want to be, or you're not being touched in a way mm. that you would like to be. Um, the encephalitis when you're on your own in the hospital, and you talk about the fact that suddenly nobody will touch you and nobody mm. will, will come near you. And it runs, it runs all the way through the book in, up to your relationship with your daughter as well. Hmm. Yeah, I think one of the th themes for me for the book is about the small acts of kindness that certain people can do for you. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I would hate the idea that I'd ever written the book with a message. I don't like books with messages. No. But I think if there is a message of the book, it is that we all need to expand our capacity for kindness towards each other. I think that's, I think kindness is the connective tissue between all of us. Um, and I think again and again in the book, um, there are so many instances of people who I don't even know them and often my life only intersects with them for a very brief time but a really small act of kindness from often a complete stranger can have an enormous effect let's on my about, life let's talk about some of those moments because to me they were so they were like they were like angels some of those yeah, people exactly. they were like, they I think were like them angels terrestrial angels one of them was a man who I think he was an orderly or a kind of a hospital porter who held my hand when I was on the operating table when yeah. I was losing blood and um, having my son 
and he just took my hand and held it really tightly. And I think, actually, that saved my life. I think without him holding on to me, I would have died without him making sure that I had the eye contact with him and holding my hand really tightly. Um, so I think about him a lot. And there was also a nurse when I was in hospital as a child. And, I mean, this isn't a life-saving, but it's, I mean, in a sense it is, because I was visited. I don't, I don't want to say his name, because I find his name sticks in my throat, but he was a very well-known television children's personality. Um, yeah. And since it's been discovered that his multiple hospital visits had another uh, evil intent. So he visited me when I was paralyzed in hospital. Um, and a nurse in the room with me, he said to her twice, you can go, I'll look after her. And she said, no, I'm going to stay. So I think about her, and I don't even know her name, but she saved my life in a very different way. Do you think she knew what was happening? I don't know, it's funny, a lot of I'm people have asked it. me that yeah. since then, they didn't think she knew. And I, I find it hard to believe that anyone would know and enable or facilitate what he was doing. I don't think she could have known, but for whatever reason, she refused to leave the room. So yeah. she was there and saved me in that way. But there are lots of, there are lots of examples like that. Uh, the, the opposite of that is something that happens a, a couple of times, more than a couple of times in the book, where things happen to you and you blame yourself. Um, you know, at, at, right at the, very, at the very start, when you, when you jump, into, uh, jump into the sea and nearly drown, um, <laughs> you blame yourself, not entirely... You know, it is kind of my it's fault. It's slightly your fault. Um, you did <laughs> to jump be honest, in the sea. Uh, in that case. But, but, but there are lots of moments where, where, you, where you wonder in the book about what it is about you that attracts, a certain, you see, a certain kind of violence. Um, and and, and you, kind of, you kind of, you wonder about that. Um, and I wonder when you first became aware of that, aware of that sense of being a person who attracted that. As you, as you, you say that yourself, I'm not saying Well, I think that. actually, unfortunately, the kind of violence that I'm talking about in the book is something that women on their own attract and yeah. I, I think that's a horrible truth that we all have to face we all learn to face you know when we're young teenagers um and so many people have come up to me and said to me you know i had exactly the same experience that i was in a bar i was on a bus stop i was on a bus i was on a train and a man came to talk to me and straight away i knew that something was wrong yeah um and you know i say this to my kids all the time you know if something smells bad it is bad so you need to, if you've got to listen to your instincts and you've got to get out of that situation as quickly as you can. Yeah. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, I don't think it's you me. I think it's I think it's just something you learn as yeah. a young teenage girl that you will attract that kind of attention, and some of it is annoying, and some of it is dangerous. I mean, Margaret Atwood said, you know, a man's fear is that a woman, will, a greatest fear is that a woman will laugh at him, and a woman's greatest fear is that the man will kill her. Yeah. It is striking that. Um, in all the moments in the book which, where you aren't yourself responsible for doing something like jumping into the sea, it is always men who are placing mm. you in danger, either by their actions or by their inactions. You know, I'm thinking about childbirth and you, know, you having to argue for a caesarean. Yeah. I mean, I, don't, I didn't intend it to be a kind of a genderised book at all. And there are lots of examples of men saving me, like the man in yeah. the orderly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't... I hate any kind of homogenization of any kind of group at all, so I wouldn't ever say, and there's, you know, there's an awful lot of men saving me as well, yeah. <laughs> to be fair. But, yeah, there are two chapters in particular where male violence is, is an issue, I think. Um, can we talk a wee bit about, about your daughter mm. um, and your wonderful daughter um, and the, her, her arrival in the world, her mm. unexpectedness, first of all, um, and then her condition and how you cope with that. Mm. So I had a long time uh, being unable to conceive a child and I um, experienced multiple pregnancy loss. Um, and then I did have IVF at one point and I was told that it hadn't worked at all. Um, so I was very upset, obviously. And I still think this is very important. I went away to Skye in a camper van and I was very upset still. And I. <laughs> and I swam in the Glen Bristle fairy pools. I still think it's very important. And when I came back, I felt really ill and really sick all the time. And I thought, oh, I feel terrible. And I don't know what's wrong with me. I feel like I've got some terrible degenerative disease. I'm so tired all the time and I feel really sick. And I just went, I already had a child at this point, so it's kind of ridiculous that I didn't realise. Um, so anyway, I went back to the doctor and I said, I feel terrible. Why do I feel so terrible? And they put the scanner on my stomach and there she was. Amazing. 13 weeks gestation. And... For whatever reason, they hadn't picked up on the tests that they'd given me. But yeah. I still think the Glen Brittle Ferry Pools has something to do with it. <laughs> but the other day, do you know what was really weird? The other day, she came in and she was holding this book. 
Oakland. It was a photography book about Scotland. We were staying in a holiday house, and she said, what's this? And it was a picture of the Glenbittle Fairy Pools. Oh, my God. And I told her the story, and she was just kind of... <laughs> she just thought, what are you talking about? Because obviously she's always saying, that's, that's St Paul's. And I said, oh, there's this whole long story. And she was just kind of, oh, okay, all right, just yeah, enough. Don't want to she, know. Yeah, exactly. Don't want to know. She kind of walked out halfway through. I don't blame her. <laughs> You're like, but it's important. It's magical. <laughs> exactly. I just want to tell you the story about magic. Um, at what point did it become clear that, that she was not well? Well, she was born straight away. Um, and there was something, her skin didn't look right. Um... <laughs> even at she was a day or two days old. And she, um, by the time she was two weeks old, maybe she had absolute chronic eczema, head to foot. And when I say eczema, you see a lot of people, when they um, hear eczema, they think a little bit of a rash here. Yeah. But this was um, every single part of her body and she did never slept through the night. She was bleeding, she was uncomfortable, she couldn't wear clothes, she couldn't play, she couldn't eat. Um, I've never seen anything like it. I didn't even know it was possible was it on every have, part of her body? Yeah, every single part of her body. If she opened, moved her arm like that, her, spin, her skin would split. Um, I mean, I, I have never known anything like it. I didn't know it could happen. Um, so we had a very, very steep learning curve um, with that. And when she was about nine months old, I took her to see this amazing doctor, and he um, diagnosed her with... Well, she has, she has an immune, immune disorder, which means she gets very, very severe and sudden and serious infections but she's also um, tips into anaphylactic shock. Um, with, if she comes into contact with, well, a huge number of things, a lot of things that just naturally occur in our environment. Um, so she has a lot of food allergies and also she's very allergic to things like, I'll just give you an example, a silver birch pollen. Now you see, I didn't know that silver birch trees, very beautiful, but they have the longest pollinating <laughs> calendar of any tree. Right. You wouldn't know, so it's about from about March to October. So you're just going yeah. around chopping down silver birch trees the We did actually time. chop down two in our garden. Yeah, and it was of course awful. They were so beautiful. And one of our neighbours complained. And my husband said, he's not going to complain to you again, is he? Because <laughs> <laughs> I opened the door and I was like, You're standing near okay. the mat. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it's so extreme, though, that, that like, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I had to reread this bit of the book several times to understand it. I didn't know that allergies could be yeah. so extreme. No, I think I we think of people with, who have those sorts of allergies as being malingerers and oversensitive yeah. and somehow bothersome. But if somebody cracks an egg, in a room that she is in, she, yeah. she can have a very severe. She could die in ten minutes. She could die in yeah. ten minutes. Yeah, yeah, she could. Or a peanut bag is opened yeah. on a plane. So I wouldn't bring her in here, for example, because I don't know what people have been eating or what they might have in their bags or yeah, anything like that. The thing is, I mean, the strange thing is, I what didn't know it was possible. On you, though? Well, it's a, it's life changing, obviously, but um, we just have to be very careful all the time and think about it. So it's at the forefront of my mind all the time. The other, <laughs> the other day, my husband and I were watching a film. We were in a cinema, I should point, we weren't even at home. And somebody on screen reached into a bowl of nuts and both of us went, oh! yeah. <laughs> so we were watching a horror film. We were both saying, oh, because we're so, um, you know, <laughs> we're so programmed now to go, oh my God, <laughs> take her away. So it is, it is, it's difficult, yes, but at the same time, you always have to think, there's always somebody worse off than you. Mm. You know, I remember taking it when the hospital, we, we used to live in London, and the hospital I used to take her to, um, there was a, a corridor that I used to walk down and there was one signpost to respiratory analogy, which is where we were going. And I always used to be grateful that we were turning left because turning right was paediatric oncology. Right. And I used to think, you know, that is a low, much lower circle of hell. You know, I've got my child, she's here, she's holding my hand, and not yeah. every mother can say that. Yeah. And just going back to that point about touch, you say about holding her hand, you're, you, you've been always been very conscious all through her various heart brushes with death mm. of holding her hand yeah. or of touching her, you know, in, in, in any way that you can to, to, to connect with her. Yeah, well, it's very important, you know. I mean, your job as a mother to somebody with additional needs is partly kind of practical. You know, you've got to... I mean, uncharacteristically, because I'm not a very organised person, but in that way I have become very organised, obviously, because I've got to always make sure we've got her medication, it's always in date, and she's always with people who know exactly what to do, that she's never in danger. And, but a part of it is emotional, you know, and the, the emotional side of it changes and morphs all the time, obviously, as she gets older. Mm -hmm. um, but I, as my job as her mum, I've got to think of a way to explain and metabolise these traumas for her, you know, yeah. because for the average nine-year-old, she's suffered a lot more brushes with death than most kids have, and, you know, you've got to think, you've got to invent a way to tell a two-year-old or a four-year-old who's suffering and cannot sleep through the night and in pain or is in an ambulance or is being injected or is on a respirator. It's my job to make that okay for her, you know, and that's 
ever-changing and ever-challenging. But I think what it's, you know, with anything like this, there's no point, I think, in thinking about the why. You can't think, why me, why her, why? There's no profit in that. You're never going to get anywhere. What you have to think about is the how. How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to make it okay? How can I give her the biggest and the best life she could possibly have within these strictures? Um, you do dwell on the why a bit in the book. You do, yeah. you, you, you do ask yourself why. And there is a point where you, you describe very poignantly wanting to go up to strangers and, and say to them, how can this be? How can it be that my child is so poor? Have you seen this? And you're just kind of look, looking in the pram. And, and at one point, a doctor suggests to you that it might be that, that she developed this in utero as a result of one of your brushes with death, no. one, of, one of your traumas. Did that make any sense to you at all when it was said to you, or did you just... I was quite cross about that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, I've been told all kinds of things. I mean, people say, people say all kinds of stuff, and it's difficult. People, and I'm sure, doctors, or people, people? Well, people, doctors and people, people, actually. Yeah. And there are. I mean, to be, to be very honest, you know, I'd say nine times out of ten, I'm bowled over by how kind people are, yeah. and how nice and how incredibly supportive people are and the school my child goes to and the other parents in the class are amazing and everybody looks out for her all the time and I couldn't be more grateful for yeah. that. Yeah. But there's always one person for the 10th time who will be rubbish and will say, what's wrong with her? Is it catching? You know? <laughs> and you think, ah, why can you say that? She can hear. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there is, but you, know, you can't hang on to that anger. You have to let go of it. That's, it's, those are their issues and they're not mine. She is... And- she is part of the reason that, that you wrote the book, right? You wanted to articulate to, yes. to, your, to your other children and to, and to other people that, you know, living in close proximity with death mm. is a part of life for more people than you might realise. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think it, it's always been really important to me to frame the issues that she has as something that's shared by all five of us. Yeah. You know, I think if one person in a family has a medical condition, you can't just see them in isolation. It's something, it's yeah. something that everybody carries. You know, when she went into anaphylactic shock last year um, on New Year's Day, you know, obviously she was at the forefront of my mind and we went to the ambulance, but we had to peel her four-year-old sister's fingers off her to get her into the ambulance. And I, you know, obviously as I was going to hospital, I was thinking, you know, we need to sort this child out. But at the back of my mind, I was thinking, when I get home, I'm going to have to make that okay for her little sister because she's never going to forget that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to open it up to questions now. I think it's getting to to that time. So the lights are coming up. I can see you all now. So we've got four microphones and the lady over there who put her arms straight up in the red. Nobody fainted. Well, that we know of. <laughs> My heart stopped now. It's <laughs> great. Uh, yes, please. Uh, yes, my question was, um, there's 17 events in your book and um, we did discuss it at a, a book club and... There's very divided views, and you could say you were massively unlucky or massively lucky to come mm. through them. How do you view that yourself? I feel amazingly lucky. Not at all unlucky at all, actually. I feel like I'm a very, very lucky person. Um, you know, I have three children I really adore, and I've got a job that I love. Um, and also, I'm here, you know. I think it will be completely the wrong thing to think of myself as unlucky. And I think a lot of the brushes of death I had uh, relate back to the childhood illness that I had. Um, I was quite interested. I mean, that's one of the things that I think we were talking about going when you're writing memoir, you do learn quite a lot about yourself, things that you hadn't, because I'd never really investigated the illness I had particularly. Um, I knew it had happened and I just kind of... Actually, it's interesting because when I had it, I was, I was living in South Wales and then I moved to Scotland, moved to North Berwick when I was 13. And I remember saying to my mum at that time, um, I don't want anyone at my new school to know that I was ill, you know. And I realised actually moving countries and moving schools, moving to a completely different place, I could, um, I could be somebody else. I could reinvent myself. And I didn't have to be this girl who'd been in a wheelchair. I could just be a girl who was a bit rubbish at sport and a bit mal-coordinated. <laughs> and it was this incredible revelation. And I think from that point on, I just got into the habit of hiding it and pretending it hadn't happened and covering up. Um, and so it, was, it is quite a strange thing to have written the book now and I don't, I'm not covering it up anymore but actually I think now I think well why should I actually because everybody has you know we all have challenges we all face things we've all faced difficult times and isn't it better to talk about it than hide it Thank you for your question does this mean that you're going to write another memoir then? <laughs> I'm going to go on and on, go on. No, no definitely not 
I mean, I said that before. I'd never, but no, I know. So, so, so that's writing, a yes, then. Yeah. <laughs> it's a definite no. Now, I'm writing another novel, which is such a relief, actually, to make you, stuff are up Are you again. working on it now? Yeah. It's a relief. So is it the one easy. that you worked, the, the one yeah, that you Yeah, yeah, the one I've gone back to, the one I, I just shelved. Um, yeah, it's so much easier to make stuff up than... The truth is hard. The truth is hard. Yeah. Yes, lady, yeah. Can you just wait for the microphone one wee second? Because I can hear you, but the 750 other people can't. <laughs> I guess it. on a related note to the truth being hard, um, I was just wondering, you know, given you have written fiction before, where they're sort of turning to memoir, where you yourself are the characters within it, and you are sort of dealing with real-life uh, events. So I guess in a sense that that, that can be a, a constraint or something like that. And I was wondering how that's affected you as a writer and if it's made you a better writer in that, you know, the, the characters are real, I suppose. I don't know. I suppose it remains to be seen. <laughs> Depends if you'd like my next novel, I guess. Um, I don't know, actually. It's an interesting question. I mean, certainly it feels... We were talking about this, actually, just before. It, it does feel really different. And it, in some sense, actually, writing a memoir after writing, having written novels, you get lulled into a kind of false sense of security a lot of the time. Mm. Um, because, you know... Grammar is grammar and sentences are sentences and whether you're making up a paragraph, you know, in the kind of nuts and bolts of it all, um, it's essentially the same thing, you know, whether it's true or not. But I would find that I'd get a lull into this kind of false sense of security and then I would suddenly think, you know, it'd be an awful lot better if this scene, if I could move it to France and I could bring in maybe another character. <laughs> point and and I think, oh no, I can't do that because I've actually got to stick to the truth. Yeah. So it is strange. So it's more, and I realise actually that the more, it's more a kind of sense of, um, you know, a novel is, and fiction is creation, whereas a memoir is excavation. You know, you've got to dig, actually dig down really deep, and all you've got is this tiny little pen, and you're sifting around. You're like an archaeologist, you know, sifting around for objects that might be interesting or valuable. Um, so in some ways it's familiar, in some ways very different, I think. But whether it's improvement writing, I've no idea, actually. Time will tell, I guess. It was unimprovable. Um, <laughs> no, I... I um... I, I definitely found writing the novel scarier because with memoir, I sort of thought I knew what I was getting yes. to, even though when I got to events, they were different than I'd remembered them or, you know, um, they changed for having been looked at. Mm. But with a novel, you can do anything. And I found yeah. that paralysing for about two years. <laughs> I thought I can kill anybody. <laughs> I can do anything. I can put them anywhere. Yeah. And then you realise that you can't because they have to become real and their world has to become real. And actually yes. that means there's limitations and choices. And, and, you know, you get away from all that the more that you write, or at least that's what I found. But, um, mm. but yeah, equally hard in different ways, I, I found gentleman there. Hello there. Um, Hi. I'm glad you mentioned um, messing with uh, tense in person because that's exactly what I wanted to ask about in This Must Be The Place, uh, which I just finished the other day, but I thought it was the best latticework of um, relations I've come across. You're across time and place and Thank you. the whole mix. Um, in the second chapter when Claudette's introduced and you switch to Second person, for a moment I had to stop and think, who's this? And it's like the, the use of second person introduces a third person who might be, it's maybe not you talking to Claire, certainly it's not me. So is she talking to herself? Is it somebody we have yet to figure out? And that's the only chapter in the second person, I think. In the, so was that a dislocating device that you were hoping for? Yes, it was. I think in that chapter, I think the one, if I remember rightly, it starts off uh, plural. She's talking about we. We. She's talking about she and a kind of group of friends and they move to London to find jobs and, and then halfway through it switches to you because suddenly she feels isolated and alone. And I do, you know, this is a conversation I often have with my editor, actually, and other people who help me with my manuscripts. And I always say to them, because they, often they question it and they say, you know, you have changed tense and... Um, you know, uh, first person to second person several times in the space of my chapter. And I always say, well, actually, and I, think, I think if you are going to do that, there has to be a very good reason, and you have to make sure that you support it with enough. Um, you know, you've got to think of it in terms of sort of, uh, if you do something daring architecturally, you know, if you're going to float, say, a room or a part of a building, you need, to, you need to absolutely make sure that it's structurally possible, that it's engineered and it's got enough to support it. You mm. can't just hope for the best because otherwise people walk into the building and are going to fall through the floor. And it's the same with readers. You've got to really... You've got to, first of all, make sure that it's necessary. You've got to have very good reasons to do it, to do something 
sort of technically tricky like that. And then you've also got to make sure that it's completely buttressed and supported. Um, and for me, in that paragraph, in that chapter, actually, I wanted to yeah, show the kind of alienation that she felt when she suddenly leaves university and she's got to go and find herself a job. And it felt, I think, you know, using the second person, using you, is a very tricky thing. Um, and you can only use it quite sparingly, I think, because it is quite disconcerting for the reader because you open it and suddenly you think, are they, like you say, are they addressing me or are they talking about themselves? The person I think does it brilliantly is Edna O'Brien in a novel called The Pagan Place. And the whole novel is in the second person um, singular, which is a very daring thing to do, but she pulls it off. It's brilliant. Jay McKinney does it as well in um, Bright Lights Big City. Not that I'm at all a grammar nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I go around noticing these things. <laughs> Uh, thank you for your question. You do do it in here as well. I do it in here as well, actually. Yeah, yeah occasionally. Brief, uh, briefly, sparingly. Mm. Other hands. There's a question, person right at the back. Hello. Hello, Sasha. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, I was thinking, uh, with I am, I am, I am, you mentioned that one of the impacts of your illness was that um, you have trouble orienting yourself in space and mm. that when you close your eyes, you don't really know where you are, kind of when you are, and how you move through that, and you also hate sort of a, a standard chronology in your novels. Do you think that that's impacted your writing at all? <laughs> well, interestingly, I, yeah, it's funny you should answer that. Um, I have never, like I say, I've never really written chronologically, and it's something that, it, I suppose it happens in all my books, actually, even my novels. Uh, I find chronology quite, it's a bit of a straitjacket, actually, narratively. And I've always wondered, I've always thought, actually, it's not really how we are as human beings. You know, I think we're much more nuanced and complicated than that. I think of us as sort of more geological layering. I don't think that's how human brains work very neatly from A to B. Well, it's certainly not how my brain works anyway. Um, and as a kind of narrative structure, I always thought, what's the point of it? You know, why do we have to adhere to it? Mm. So I've never written in that way. <laughs> but I did have a conversation with um, my neurologist. I showed him the manuscript before I published it because I wanted him to actually make sure that the stuff I was saying made sense yeah. neurologically speaking and he, he said he said I wonder if um, you know having a cerebellar disorder has affected the, the, your, your kind of grasp of chronology he said maybe that's why you write in a very <laughs> chopped up way yeah. and I was quite upset because I thought I thought this was a kind of artistic vision that I had <laughs> developed but actually maybe it's just because I'm brain damaged <laughs> uh. Other, other hands. I think I saw some over here. Oh, at the back, right in the middle. You have to pass the microphone along. There you go. It's like pass the parcel at the back. <laughs> go faster. There you go. Hi, Maggie. Hi. Um, I'd just like to thank you for your continuous mention of the dermatology department in Edinburgh. Um, I'm really proud that my wife's sitting here, Antonia, who you actually mentioned uh -huh. in one of your books. Um, <laughs> yeah, random acts of kindness you talked about tonight, and you really did a random act of kindness back to that department. <laughs> I'd just like to say thank you. Well, if I put a, a thank you in every single book I ever published, it would only be a tiny, tiny proportion of what I owe the dermatology department in Lorison Place in Edinburgh, and particularly your wife, Antonia. I don't know, she's probably quite embarrassed now, but <laughs> when I think about uh, strangers who were very kind to me, she was somebody who certainly comes up in my mind. And can I just say that when I, I was seeing Antonia probably about once a week for a, over quite a long period of time, and there was once that I came to her and with my daughter, I should stress, it wasn't just me. <laughs> and so I had a, th a three, probably three and a half year old who had never slept through the night and was in constant, constant pain and agony and discomfort. So much so that when I couldn't get her, I had to put her in the bath to get her clothes off because she was bleeding into her clothes and her clothes stuck to her. Um, and we would go and see Antonia once a week and Antonia would help her and my daughter would sleep for at least five to six hours, which was... So at this point I had a 12-week-old baby and a son who was, I think, nine and he had <laughs> was in double leg casts. Um, just by the by, and he's <laughs> fine now. And I had also, when my baby was six weeks old, I had to go back to do rewrites on instructions for a heat wave. So I remember going to Antonia at this point, and I hadn't seen my, my middle child was very sick, um, and I hadn't seen my baby all day, so I was feeling really terrible and just feeling terribly guilty and very tired and overworked. 
And I remember, Antonio, you gave me a hug. Do you remember that? <laughs> and he said to me, um, and you said to me, I'm going to actually start to cry now. You said to me, you're doing a really good job. And that was such an amazing thing to be told because I felt like I was doing a terrible job at everything I was trying to do <laughs> at that time. And it made a huge difference to me. Not only were you helping my daughter, but you really helped me. So thank you. Thank you. And it should be said that a, 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 bit, a bit of money from each book goes to the, the charity. Um, oh, this book, yeah, yeah this that's book, right, yeah. yeah. It goes yeah. to the anaphylaxis campaign and also medical detection dogs who train dogs with life, um, to help people with life-threatening diseases like um, uh, diabetes and also they are training a dog for my daughter at the moment. Oh. Yeah. To a dog that can sniff out nuts, isn't that incredible? Dogs can sniff out anything. My mum's dog could sniff out anything. You just <laughs> yeah. want that. You should train it. I found out the verb the other day for when dogs um, look at you longingly wanting food. Do you know what it is? What is it? It's a really good one. Groak. Oh. Sounds like boke, but with a G-R. <laughs> Groak. It's a real word. Right, other, other questions. It's a good word. I'm very aware that I've been sitting like this, so I might not have seen somebody's hand over here. No? You're done? Oh, there's oh, a lady. There's, there, there you are. Hiya. Sorry. I'm just amazed how you ever found time to write. How'd you do it? <laughs> well, I think... Um, I think it, like, my writing's always been uh, a kind of alternative to me. And yes, you know, all of us have stresses in our life, but that's the kind of a way that I can cope with it, I think, in a way. You know, someone said to me recently, they said, You're, you were so restless and angry as a child, because I describe it in this book... Um, and I said something, well, I think I wasn't very good at being a child. I think some people aren't. I think I'm, I find it much easier being an adult than I do find it being a child. But actually, I think all that restlessness is um, a sort of dissatisfaction that I felt as a child was probably the sort of, maybe creative, I don't know, creative urge isn't a great phrase, but I think I found an outlet for it and I can be a calmer person now because there is a way I can channel it into writing books instead of having tantrums. <laughs> I do occasionally have tantrums, actually, I should say. I should confess. <laughs> um, OK, I think we are going to leave it on Maggie having a tantrum. Um, <laughs> I want you to join me in thanking Maggie O'Farrell and all her various saviours. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And you. Thank you for being here.